Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. This is episode 142. I'm on fire, cranking these episodes out currently. Um, and today, my guest is Jackson Peos. Is that correct? Peos? Peos, close. Peos, tell it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there. Um, you know, I'm really, uh, really excited to have a conversation with you, um, Jackson. Um, I'll explain why I want to have a chat with you in a minute about your about your work and your research and so on but um let's do the usual and kick this off with a who who are you jackson what are you, what are you doing what are you up to first of all thanks so much for having me on the pod uh laurent it's a, it's a true honor now just to give a quick rundown of me so i was originally an athlete so i i competed in australian rules football i was a state rower in my sort of late teenage years um, playing semi-professionally um, from then i sort of got introduced to the weights room and started lifting weights um, grew quite quickly in the first few years and, and sort of um, got bitten by the the bodybuilding bug so i went into bodybuilding competitions for a couple of years um, and around that time i was sort of just probed by a lot of questions surrounding how can i make this sort of bodybuilding endeavor uh, the most efficient and what sort of strategies, whether that be nutrition or, or training strategies, can I use to sort of optimize uh, the bang from my buck of training, so to speak. Now, that's what led me into um, university studies. So I started with a double major um, Bachelor of Science in Sports Science and Exercise and Health. Uh, I did quite well in those studies, which allowed me to get an ownership, um, a scholarship to complete my honours degree, and that was in exercise physiology. So that's similar to, I think, in the UK, a master's program, basically mm -hmm. just a year-long um, year course where you're sort of introduced to the research process. Um, I did quite well in those studies as well, um, and that's when my interest started being more heavily geared towards the nutrition side of things as, as opposed to the training and then um, the, I was lucky enough to be offered a scholarship position to complete my PhD um, specializing in clinical and sports nutrition so that's what sort of set the pathway for me of late um, and currently my research focuses on something called intermittent energy restriction which is basically just a method of dieting to lose weight where the person or the athlete will alternate between periods of a calorie deficit and periods of energy balance or a slight energy surplus. So basically cycling between dieting periods and these short-term higher feeding phases um, because where there's been a few question marks surrounding whether these strategies might improve the body composition outcomes during dieting, um, potentially might facilitate performance improvements, even uh, contribute to a more positive psychological state during dieting. So um, there was a lot of, there was a pretty solid theoretical rationale surrounding these intermittent dieting strategies, which usually in, in lay terms refers to refeeds and diet breaks, um, which the, the listeners might be a bit more familiar with. Um, but empirically, they hadn't really been tested, um, and specifically, they hadn't been tested in athletes. So that's what the, what has led me to uh, the research that I'm conducting at the moment. Awesome! And what a fascinating area you're getting into. I, you know, read your um, review paper 
um, uh, 2018 paper uh, on intermittent dieting, theoretical considerations for the athlete, with um, which you co-authored. Uh, you were the lead author, but you co-authored with Lane Norton and Eric Holmes and um, Andy Galpin and Paul Fournier. Um, apart from Paul, um, all of those I know well and have interviewed before, um, and are obviously well-known characters, particularly in the body composition arena. Um, you know, I, I I've done. I mean. This is this podcast is all about sport and exercise nutrition with a focus on practice um, and very much about, you know, what is the science? What is the evidence? And, you know, how do we take that evidence and apply it into practice? And, you know, of all the topics we could get into as a sports nutritionist, performance nutritionist, you know, body composition, weight loss, making weight is, is you know, it's right at the top of the things that we have to deal with. Um, and you'd think that we would know exactly how to do that, <laughs> but we don't. And it is a constant challenge because, you know, I mean, especially during these crazy times that we're living through now, you know, it, 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 equally so, uh, the approaches to something, uh, you know, from a scientific perspective that is so apparently simple as just losing weight or losing body fat, energy balance, you know, energy deficits and all those conversations the reality as we as we go from the science and look at the practice you know we we introduce the you know the craziness of the real world and the you know the sheer magnitude of differences that exist between people their circumstances their metabolisms their personal preferences religion religious constraints what they're trying to achieve you know what why are they doing it anyway psychological profiles blah 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 which of course is you know it is all of the the nuances that makes this such a complex area, but such an exciting one, of course. And my listeners will be very used to me saying things like, you know, the, the science and the strategies and so on is tools in the toolbox. And what we're going to talk about is a really exciting uh, new-ish type of tool in our in our toolbox. And I you know, the, 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 there's obviously a lot of crossover here with lots of strategies that we'll all be familiar with. Um, I've covered a lot of um, a lot of episodes where, one way or the other, we've discussed things like nutritional periodization, strategic approaches to nutrition. Um, you know, uh, concepts like the three T's: total, type, and timing. Um, all the way through to um, a recent podcast I did actually with. Um, uh, um, Evelyn Parr, uh, Australian Catholic University on time-restricted eating, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, we, we haven't gotten into intermittent dieting or this concept that you've done a lot of work on, um, on um, intermittent energy restriction, which I find fascinating, um, which we're going to do, of course. But mm-hmm. um, I think it's, it's fair to say that, um, you know, th- 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 this represents just another tool in the toolbox. And I want to help both myself selfishly, um, but also the audience understand, you know, what, what this tool is and what the strengths and limitations of it as far as the evidence currently is, so that we know how to potentially utilize these strategies in our, in our practice. So with all that said, um, I'm going to hand back to you and just maybe give us a bit of an idea about, you know, by way of just laying some foundations for this conversation, when we use terms like intermittent dieting, um, you know, energy restriction and, and so on. Um, maybe you could just help, help explain 
you know, what those terms mean briefly, and obviously we'll, we'll unpack them in, in great deal shortly. But what, 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 what even are we talking about here? Yeah, so energy restriction just means you're restricting your energy intake, i.e. Your, your calories coming from food and beverages below your energy requirements to maintain your body weight. Now, um, that can be achieved um, the traditional way, which is referred to as continuous energy restriction. And what that just basically means is that the person is eating below their weight maintenance energy requirements every day for the duration of the weight loss phase. Now we have, like you said, this, this novel strategy um, referred to as intermittent energy restriction. Now, in trying to speak in the, in the most basic terms I can, it means breaking up the weight loss phase into little blocks, blocks of energy restriction that are separated by blocks of basically higher eating. Now, higher eating just means you increase your calorie intake for a short period of time in between the energy restriction blocks. And that increase usually takes you to your calorie needs to maintain your body weight. Um, and sometimes it might actually be a, a slight surplus. So there might be a slight little bit of, of weight gain um, during those periods. Now, basically what that means is you have a cycle between weight loss, weight loss, weight loss, and then a short term period of basically where you just put the weight loss breaks on for a moment and increase food before you jump into your next consecutive block um, of energy restriction and, and weight loss. So essentially the, the, the outcome is the same. Um, there's still on a grand scale, there's energy restriction occurring and weight loss occurring. Um, but the difference is just with an intermittent approach, you're breaking up the weight loss phase into basically periods of on dieting and, and short periods of off, which we consider sort of not dieting or dieting breaks. Brilliant. Excellent. And, you know, the, the reason why I want to get into this deep and unpack it a lot is because this is, as I said, it's a tool in the toolbox. It's a strategy, but you know, we're not, we're not just restricting energy. We're restricting food because again, it's a common theme in, you know, my verbiage during my podcast is, you know, athletes aren't just athletes, they're human beings. You know, there's a big difference between a physique athlete and, um, um, you know, um, say a more, uh, dare I use the word more functional, but in terms of, of the you know the 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 aspects that of their athleticism what defines them as an athlete is more than just what they look like for example so they need to perform and function in a certain way um and this is where there can be some some rather interesting ramifications of manipulating the diet because of course we we know that you know we need sufficient energy and macronutrients and micronutrients to support any everything from the immune system to um you know uh, supporting training adaptations and like you say one of which um would be body composition um but in the context of a human being athlete in the real world all of the above probably matters uh even for the physique athletes there are going to be times when they're trying to get responses from their training um where the emphasis is say you know muscle hypertrophy as opposed to uh being in a lean state 
to um, you know being a skimpy underwear with a dodgy tan on a stage. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot there, and I've explored a lot of this over the years, um, particularly the implications of energy restrictions um, and how that impacts you know the immune system and and performance and so on. So I'm really looking forward to delving into these areas with you where we can have our cake and eat it, so to speak, by learning the strengths and limitations of these approaches and still bringing about the desired outcomes. So um, let, you know, why, why did you get into, I know you've given us a bit of a background, but because you yourself have by the very definition of, of um, you know, the, 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 the sort of physical, and the uh, aesthetic and the the functional athlete you yourself have been that you've been as you say uh, uh did you say aussie rules football player is that what you were? yeah mm-hmm. you, you've been that um and you've been a rower and you've been a bodybuilder so you you it's not just from a research you've actually done it yourself so it's great that you have that applied perspective where also you've bridged the gap between those sports and the science as the human being um and this is an area which is of course interesting because we introduce things like psychology and you know um good days and bad days and you know the emotional impact of of life in general but also of the energy restrictions and and so on um but but how how did this whole area come about maybe you could start with that you know where does what, what a little bit of history on it um you know where where does this concept come from is it just about weight loss like you know what is the what is what is the historical path on this this approach? Yeah, so the original mention of diet breaks was um, basically um, come upon accidentally by the researchers, and, and the the uh, lead researchers were Wing and Jeffrey on that paper. And essentially, what they did was uh, they had a group of dieting individuals, and they wanted to see what the effects of basically forcing the participants to go off the program for a couple of weeks, what sort of implications that they were going to have. And the researchers hypothesized that um, once they had this diet relapse with an increase in energy intake, that they wouldn't be able to sort of get back onto the protocol in a couple of weeks time and, and that they'd potentially regain a bunch of weight um, during the the sort of the diet break and then sort of when you mapped it out over over five six months they were going to have less weight and fat loss that compared to a group that just sort of dieted the whole time um, without any relapses but the finding was actually quite surprising because even with those these that they use either one week or two week diet breaks. They found that even with the relapses, the participants had no problems getting back um, onto the regimen. And when you compared after five and seven months, um, there were actually no differences in weight and fat loss outcomes compared to the group that just dieted through the whole time. So then the researchers started saying, well, hey, maybe, maybe these breaks might actually be an adherence tool. Um, because they're having these sort of breaks where they can sort of back off for a moment with regards to the, the energy restriction and, and I guess the digging um, that's going on and then sort of potentially get rejuvenated, refreshed before jumping into um, their next block of dieting. So that was basically just the, the I, I guess, the origin of the thought process behind intermittent dieting strategies, I think. 
Um, beyond that, anecdotally, they'd been used um, among ph physique athletes for quite some time, um, usually in the form of refeeds, which is basically a one, two or three day increase in energy intake, usually coming from carbohydrates that might happen once a week or once a fortnight. Um, now, there was, there was a paper published by Mitchell which sort of interviewed a bunch of physique athletes and, and asked them about these refeed strategies and, and the bodybuilders talked about um, them providing sort of improvements in performance, um, uh, glycogen replenishment. Um, they even reported better fat loss and funnily enough, they reported better maintenance of resting energy expenditure, but there's no way that they, they would have actually been able to know that that was happening. Um, so it seems like, like there was just, at least in the community of the athletes, there was some belief and perception that these refeeds were um, an efficacious tool uh, for weight loss. Um, but still at that point in time, we didn't have any studies, empirical studies on athletes. Um, we did, however, have some intermittent studies in overweight and obese populations. And uh, one of the most profound studies was in a group of overweight men where they dieted, dieted them for 16 weeks, but after every two weeks, they had a two-week diet break where they increased their energy intake to weight maintenance. So they lost weight for two weeks, then they just stabilized for two weeks, and they lost for two weeks and, and repeated that process until they'd accumulated 16 weeks of dieting. And they compared that to a continuous group of dieters who just went straight for the 16 weeks with no breaks. And they actually saw that the group using the diet breaks they maintained the resting energy expenditure or their resting metabolic rate at a higher level than the continuous dieting group. And they lost more weight and more fat during the trial. And they even regained less of the weight sort of six months after the trial. So that was sort of pretty um, substantial evidence that, hey, maybe sort of alternating between periods of dieting and not dieting might actually improve um, the overall outcomes when, when, you sort of map them out over the course of a weight loss phase. Mm. So um, that was sort of what had paved the way to, to my interest. And that sort of uh, when I was writing the, the theoretical speculations paper, um, that was basically where, where I was at at the time. I had a little bit of um, a, a few studies on the overweight uh, demographic and um, some pretty positive anecdote uh, among athletes. And then I sort of just sort of, combine that together to try to um, make some as justified as I could um, sort of explanations of, of how these intermittent dieting pra practices might have utility for athletes. Yeah. Um, and then for the listeners who don't know that uh, I, I didn't just talk about it. I, I am now, um, I have completed um, some two randomized controlled trials in athletes testing diet breaks. Awesome. Great. Yeah, well, um, uh, you know, I, look, this is obviously an area of great interest to a lot of people one way or the other. You know, a, a, a strategy and approach that results in successful weight loss, or in particular, successful fat loss, is like the Holy Grail, isn't it? Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it is, yeah, it, it, but it is also, as I said earlier, by virtue of the you know, the, 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 the circumstances that we will find ourselves in one, one way or other is, is also what makes this so difficult. And of course, that situation becomes really complicated when we're talking about athletes. 
Um, because the consequences of simply losing weight, of course, is going to have potential uh, performance, not just limiting, but possibly performance destroying impact. And that could go anywhere from immune responses to, you know, illness, injury, uh, that sort of thing, um, to potentially increasing the risk of, of um, injury uh, or significant you know, delays in, in recovery or return to play, of course, um, and or just not looking right where, you know, the physique athlete is, uh, you know, again, that's the outcome goal, which is a super tricky area. I, I haven't spent a whole lot of my career on that, but I did publish or co-author a, a paper, at one, of the, one of the original case studies on uh, nutrition and training interventions for uh, a bodybuilder and uh, that was an eye-opening experience i can tell you <laughs> um so let's let's just come back into this because we just i just said it's like the holy grail and of course if 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 all you do is look in a textbook it, you know it's quite simple um you know br bringing about a weight loss or even if we want to get slightly um more relevant and say desirable body composition outcomes it's just a question of getting the energy in and out bit right. But of course, that's what the science is, but the practice is more complex. Um, we don't need to school everyone on the basics of energy balance because everyone listening will, will kind of get that, uh, particularly if they listen to a lot of my podcasts. But what I think would be interesting to get into is what happens in terms of the adaptive responses to energy restriction um, just generally, before we talk about, you know, whether it's continuous energy restriction or intermittent, you know, the various methods of intermittent energy restriction, um, just generally, um, what are the adaptive responses to energy restriction we should start this chat off with? Yeah, so the, the adaptive responses to energy restriction that are most relevant to impacting the body composition adjustments is basically the some a host of metabolic and hormonal changes uh, that accompany the energy deficit. Now, when we say metabolically, uh, what we're typically referring to is a reduction in energy expenditure. Now, this is a reduction in resting energy expenditure. So we just burn less calories at rest when we're in energy restriction. Um, but as we lose weight, we actually also lose energy expenditure by means of locomotion so we have less mass so it burns less calories to just move around and and do our training and, and walk the dog and things like that we also have reductions in this thing called non-exercise activity thermogenesis which is um, not exactly planned exercise like going for a jog or anything like that but just um, incidental activities that, that often happen subconsciously like tapping your foot or um Fidgeting, maybe yeah. yeah fidgeting subconsciously parking a little bit further um away in the, at a parking bay to the shops um so you, you sort of don't have to walk as far or some or something like that um and the research suggests that a lot of those reductions in that non-exercise component actually happen sort of unconsciously with, without us knowing so basically to summarize that where we burn less calories at rest as we lose weight and as we're in energy restriction and we burn less calories doing our exercise and, and, and just moving around. Now, um, accompanying that is we get changes in, in um, our serum concentrations over a number of hormones that regulate both our metabolism, our fat mass and our fat free mass. And 
The hormones that I generally like to refer to are the appetite regulating hormones. So we have leptin. Now, leptin is a hormone that's released from our fat cells. So in energy restriction, we lose, le we lose fat. We therefore secrete less le leptin. Now, leptin is an important hormone because it is regulatory on our energy expenditure and our satiety. So when we have less leptin circulating in our bloodstream, uh, we often have a lower energy expenditure and we have a basically um, more appetite because there's less satiety response. Um, so that, of course, everyone can understand that of feeling hungrier during a diet. That's largely a, as, as a result of, of decreases in, um, in leptin. Now, we also get changes in thyroid hormones. So thyroid hormones can, can some research suggests they can explain up to 30% of our, of our metabolic rate. So as, they, as those hormones decrease with energy restriction, uh, that has a, a carry-on effect to reducing our energy expenditure um, further. Now, we also get, um, I, I won't go through all of them, but we also get some changes in, in some of these steroid hormones, like we get reductions in testosterone and IGF, now, these hormones are regulatory of our fat-free mass, which, of course, includes things like muscle. So when we're getting a decrease in, in, in circulating hormones of that nature, basically maintaining our fat-free mass is under threat. So when we pull all those things together, basically what we're getting is, in, in lay terms, a slowing down of our metabolic rate, which means we just burn less calories in a day. We're getting changes in our appetite regulating hormones that are making us hungrier and wanting to eat more, which is threatening our adherence to the dietary protocol. And we're also getting changes in steroid hormones that might risk us losing muscle mass and fat-free mass. So they're generally the negative outcomes that are associated with energy restriction, and they tend to be exacerbated the leaner the individual is, such as with, with an athlete. Yeah, the, I, I, I've done quite a few podcasts in the past with a number of well-known researchers on metabolism. Um, and, you know, there's that whole fascinating side um, about the compensatory mechanisms that occur as a result of this that just isn't something that is typically addressed or considered when people talk about energy metabolism, uh, energy balance, um, because it's, it's, it's just frequently that very sort of reductionist approach of um, energy in and out. But of course, it's the, you know, I mentioned it before, it's, it's it, the reality is highly nuanced. And you've already made it clear that there's all sorts of um, things that are happening in response to an energy restriction, which we could then further contextualize even further, because of course, are we talking about acute energy responses? Um, you know, within a day, within a week, within a year, because they all have different implications, of course. Um, and also, well, going back to the science again, is, is our understanding of this comes from what? Is it from a study that was, you know, done using a metabolic cart over a couple of hours? Or is it a, you know, a 24-hour metabolic chamber study? study or is it a uh, metabolic ward studies, you know, where are we learning this from? And of course, a lot of that information also comes from non-athlete, you know, environments, which makes this all the more uh, hard, which of course is why we find the, the sort of the science purists like to stick with that. And some of the information that comes from the spit, spit and sawdust laboratory, otherwise known as the gym, 
um, particularly when it's related to the bro scientists, we'll call them in, in the lab, uh, sorry, in the gym, um, you know, there's some raising of eyebrows, but actually maybe they, they kind of knew something that we didn't. But again, additional factors would be, is someone in a, in an, in a artificially uh, increased um, state of, uh, you know, their hormones, for example, are they taking something that is artificially increasing, say, testosterone levels? Uh, are they or are they not resistance training? You know, stress and all these other things are also things, of course, that I refer to as that sort of holistic picture that is real life of a real person in the real in the real world. Um, so let's let's come back to that again then. When when we're looking at these adaptive responses to energy restriction from a contextualized perspective of, um, for example, the difference between um, continuous energy restriction, you know, a diet over the course of um, three to six months a year, as opposed to maybe some intermittent approaches. What, 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 do, we, what, what, do, we, what do we know? What do we think we know um, that has sort of interesting twists, if you like, on those adaptive responses? Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot more than we think we know, we know compared to what we actually do know. Um, so all those adaptive responses to energy restriction um, that I mentioned, they still occur with intermittent energy restriction, right? Um, but the theory behind the intermittent energy restriction is based on some evidence that shows that when you're dieting someone in energy restriction and you reestablish energy balance, that you start seeing a normalization of some of these um, variables that are impacted from energy restriction, namely energy expenditure starts to um, restore um, back towards baseline levels. Um, sometimes you see short-term elevation in leptin and thyroid following um, a period of energy balance. Um, now that's what's led some people to speculate then, well, Hey, if we, if we have all these little periods of energy balance across the weight loss phase, we might be able to potentially mitigate the overall reductions in these markers that might occur with continuous energy restriction. Now the, the classic term is, is the bodybuilder phrase, or I use refeeds or diet breaks to, to ramp up my metabolism or boost my meta metabolic rate. Now, on face value, I guess that makes sense because we do have data that shows when you diet someone down, you reestablish energy balance, you start seeing some normalization in resting energy expenditure. But that's a completely different discussion compared to when you map this over a 12-week weight loss phase, will there still be practical differences in where your resting metabolic rate is compared to continuous energy restriction after 12 weeks? Now... Just to give some of my personal take on this, when at the point that I was writing the theoretical paper on intermittent dieting, I was fairly confident, confident that using refeeds and diet breaks would result in a higher resting energy expenditure, potentially greater fat loss and greater retention of fat-free mass during weight loss compared to continuous energy restriction. I was quite confident of that and I felt like I had... Um, enough data to be able to arrive at that conclusion. Since completing my study, um, which involved 60 resistance trained athletes, um, 
that went through energy 12 weeks of energy restriction applied intermittently as three weeks of dieting alternated with one week diet breaks compared to 12 weeks of continuous energy restriction. Um, I am far less confident that um, overall when we're looking on the grand scale, sort of the macro picture and sort of we're looking at, we're comparing outcomes at the end of the weight loss phase. Um, I'm less confident that refeeds and diet breaks um, increase metabolism or increase hormones in such a manner that will um, significantly improve the outcomes compared to continuous energy restriction. Now, I'll just, I'll just speak quickly about when I've looked at the acute versus the chronic data. So I have measured metabolic markers, hormonal markers, fat-free mass values immediately pre and immediately post the diet break. And yes, it's true, like, like we expected, we see increases in fat-free mass, increases in resting energy expenditure, um, improvements in some of these hormones that, that threaten sort of the dieting process. But it seems that as soon as energy restriction is reestablished in that next block of dieting, that those values just regress straight back to where they were quite quickly. So it's almost like a little blip. So I think now that we, that, that yes, refeeds and diet breaks will on a short term basis improve those resting energy expenditure and, and some of the hormones and and restore some fat-free mass but i don't think the increase is sizable enough to make a difference on over the course of a whole weight loss phase yeah i i look this is, this is one of these examples isn't it of as you've just pointed out you know there still remains more questions than answers and what is interesting about this though is that if you do go back to you know, the gym floor, I think people seem to think that we, we kind of know what we're doing one way or the other, and the science is going to catch up. But actually, it's, it's pretty complicated, isn't it? Um, but, it, you know, as I've already mentioned, it gets particularly complicated when we're talking about the more functional athletes, um, where there are other consequences of, you know, continuous states of energy restriction on things like substrate utilization, particularly for endurance athletes. Um, but one area that I found really interesting in your paper that um, I, I, did, I did remember reading about, you know, the differences, for example, between, um, you know, uh, or the, 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 the theories behind um, fat cell hyperplasia and fat cell hypertrophy. Um, but what I didn't really realize, and I'd love to get into this a bit, as one of these responses um, to energy restriction is that well firstly the science seems to have developed a lot further on that uh, where you know we 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 know that that muscle fibers um you know that's not a case of hyperplasia but it is a case of hypertrophy but with fat cells it's a slightly different story but particularly when you start looking at whether or not it's um chronic energy restriction or uh, intermittent levels of energy restriction um and the ultimate impact being this rather weird symptom you get, particularly in physique athletes going through this process where their rapid weight gain, um, um, it, it can be quite shocking to the point that they, they end up gaining more weight than when they started this process. Um, from a sort of a physio, you know, the sort of a, through the physiological lens, um, what's going on there? Because obviously, you know, this is the area that we're trying to manipulate the most is, 
reducing body fat either for aesthetics or for improving body composition you know for um you know uh, power to weight ratios that sort of thing but either way there is this part of the body that you know we, we've been led to believe is quite simply a case of energy restriction will result ultimately if you get the energy balance bit right a loss of body fat but it's not quite so simple as that and the long-term implications as i've just inferred could bite you in the ass so to speak so what what's what what am i referring to and um how how should we understand it as far as you can tell from the evidence yeah so when we lose body fat we aren't losing fat fat cells our fat cells are just decreasing in size basically they're liberating the the energy contents from them and they get smaller now what's quite interesting and um this has only to date been shown in, in rat studies. It hasn't mm -hmm. been shown in humans yet. But after a period of weight loss, when the fat cells decrease in size and you start refeeding, um, overfeeding in fact, because as a consequence of the energy restriction and the fat loss, there is a change in the characteristics of the fat cells themselves that make them more primed to store nutrients. Um, and basically from an evolutionary perspective, that just makes sense because um, basically dieting is a controlled starvation, but, but the body doesn't know that it's controlled, right? They just think we're starving. Um, so the body's starting to say, okay, if we're in a famine and, and we find some food, we want to store the hell out of it because we don't know when we're going to eat next. Now, so we have these reduced size fat cells that are extremely primed for the storage of nutrients whenever we start sort of feeding. Now, <clears throat> the research with the rats showed that when you start overfeeding them, they store, they increase in size extremely rapidly. But in fact, they actually start dividing in some, in some cases when, when there's an excess of nutrients, um, there seems to be this novel adaptation to basically allow the body to store more nutrients than it otherwise would. And in that case, it, it sort of splits the fat cells into two. So it basically doubles the size of the storage depot um, for where nutrients can be deposited. Now, um, like I said, that hasn't been shown in humans, but it would definitely make sense that it has potential to happen in humans when you think about cases of, um, like I see it in physique athletes all the time, uh, when they diet down for a bodybuilding show, perhaps they went from, let's say, 80 to 70 kilos across their contest prep. And then in the first seven weeks post show that there are 85 kilos and, and they've, they've basically surpassed their originally start starting point. Now, theoretically that could suggest that um, they've basically increased their fat cell number. So now they're able they're, they're sort of more preferentially situated to, to store more fat. And that's what's um, potentially explaining um, the significant, rapid weight regain that's occurring now in terms of the how can we um basically bring this into context with the intermittent versus the continuous dieting discussion um there is some theory and and again this is theory um that if you have an intermittent dieting period um an intermittent dieting phase where you have these periods of basically like controlled increase in, in energy intake um, there is thought that this provides a sensor to the fat cells that nutrients aren't in 
such a short supply and therefore they don't need to sort of adapt with these new characteristics for sort of expedited storage when when calories come. Whereas with a continuous energy restriction where you're just sort of dieting for 12 weeks straight, um, it could make, it's theoretically makes sense that, that those fat cells, because they just haven't had any time out of energy restriction in 12 weeks, they're basically just getting better and better and better at, at storing those nutrients and potentially changing the metabolic characteristics of those fat cells to be able to potentially result in hyperplasia once um, sort of weight maintenance eating or surplus eating um, is reestablished. So, um, yeah, that's a, a lot of theoretical speculation. Um, it would be really interesting to see that um, tested empirically, mm. uh, but it just hasn't, hasn't happened yet. Yeah, so I guess the take-home message there is it's interesting. It may or may not be a factor. Um, we probably shouldn't lose sleep on it until... Yeah, um, I, I, sorry, to, sorry yeah. to interrupt. I will just jump in quickly and say it, it might not be the explanatory variable, but from the intermittent dieting studies that we do have, which are mostly in overweight people, um, from like three of the five studies that have used intermittent moderate energy restriction, um, there has been significantly less weight regain in the mm. intermittent group compared to the continuous group. So there seems to be something going on that's resulting in less weight rebound post-diet. Now that could be from potentially reducing fat cell hyperplasia. We're not sure. Sure. So I'm also interested in, in what you know and what you think about you know, the, 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 the impact of energy restriction um, on fat loss. And I don't mean that from a purely simplistic perspective. Once again, that basic idea that we just need some sort of energy restriction and one way or the other, that's going to end up in, in fat loss kind of conversation. But, but the actual difference between the, you know, the significance or the magnitude, if you like, of the energy restriction and also the difference between it being an acute sort of approach to the energy restriction or whether it's a much longer drawn out process, the, the, the efficiency, the effectiveness, the quality of the fat loss that's associated, excuse me, associated with that. Is that, is that relevant? Is that more interesting? Is there evidence there that tells us that there are some things going on there that we should also bear in mind when we're choosing how aggressive our approach is going to be um, and how, you know, for how long we're going to consider this for in our decision-making on what sort of strategy and approaches we might, you know, you know, this is sort of a causes and consequences type thought process. I think the most important consideration is, uh, what is your starting body composition? So for those with very high body fat percentages, there seems to be very little downside for being quite aggressive with the energy deficit. Um, for example, there's um, with overweight and obese populations um, going through what's VLEDs, very low energy diets, which could basically mean 1200 calories per day for someone who's 260 kilos. Um, Weight, the body composition outcome success seems to be very good. Um, basically, it seems that the body fat has this protective effect over some of the adaptive responses to energy restriction, like fat-free mass loss and, and reductions in energy expenditure and changes in um, hormones. Um, for example, 
we just talked about all the reductions in steroid hormones that influence fat-free mass that occur in lean athletes. But when you diet someone who's overweight or obese, they actually start seeing improvements in these same hormones that, that regulate fat-free mass. Um, and it just doesn't seem that fat-free mass loss is, is a concern for people who are at higher body fats, regardless of sort of how severe um, they diet. But for more important, well, not for more important, but in the context of athletes um, who might typically be of normal body weight composition, they're going to very lean body compositions um, throughout a weight loss phase. That's when things need to be a little bit more particular, I think. Um, because when you are sort of sub 10% body fat for a male or 20% for a female, um, you are at risk of perturbations in fat-free mass and hormones that regulate your resting energy expenditure, your fat mass and your fat-free mass. And the research suggests that um, 0.5 to 1% body weight losses per week is a pretty safe bet. Um, again, if you're sort of deciding whether to go close to the 0.5 or close to the one, um, that should again be scaled, I think, um, towards your body fat level. Um, like if you're, if you feel like you're on the higher end of the body fat, um, maybe even 10 to 15% for a male, um, 1% body weight losses, um, would likely suffice with a good amount of fat loss per week with minimal fat-free mass loss and sort of impacts in performance. Um, whereas for someone who's quite lean, um, let's say below 10%, um, maybe even it, it, bodybuilders would get down to like five or 6% on the DEXA scan. Um, it just would not be wise to be going um, sort of quite aggressive at that point. You'd want to be close to that 0.5% body weight losses per week or even below um, because the research does suggest that when you're lean, the greater the size of the energy deficit will result in more weight loss, but the proportion of that weight loss coming from fat will actually decrease with a greater proportion of that weight loss coming from fat-free mass. Now, for most athletes who are dieting, um, whether that be physique athletes or whether that be sort of any sort of strength or power athlete, um, fat-free mass is going to be important to the, the competitive outcome. So um, retaining as much of that as possible is almost equally as important as getting the fat off in the first place. Um, so as a general rule, it's the leaner you are, the more conservative and slower you go. Um, Whereas um, with a little bit higher body fat, it seems that you can get away with being a little bit more aggressive before those adaptive responses to energy restriction really start to take hold. Yeah, and you, you used a great phrase there, you know, competitive outcome. Well, when we're talking about athletes from the functional perspective, you know, they're, they're, not, just look, they're not just aiming to look like an athlete. They need to perform not just like, any athlete but like an effective athlete because that's why they're there that's you know the chances of winning a medal or you know having optimal impact in in their team they need to perform and function as best they can and you know again the the, the problem with energy restriction is you're not just restricting energy you're restricting um other things or or associated you know components um from and everything from micronutrients to even things like you know fiber that has implications for health gut health uh, the microbiome even i've done podcasts on that um and we'll come back to carbohydrate restriction and is that a good or bad thing in a minute 
um, but also uh, substrate utilization, um, you know, uh, uh, glycogen utilization, fueling, storage. And for many athletes that are of the functional type, um, they may be, you know, performing all year round, They're like combat athletes, you know, they don't necessarily have an on or, on or off season. Uh, they may also have to perform at short notice, uh, particularly tactical athletes, military personnel, that sort of thing. Um, and even though, even those that are off season, they're, they're still training for a reason. Their adaptations are also going to be about strength, power, performance, endurance, or whatever, as well as skills and various other things. And we know that in a, uh, over restricted state, um, where there's a lack of fuel or lack of things like iron or whatever, the implications are going to be pretty severe on their, on their health and even bone irreversible damage to things like like bone mass. So if, if we just bring it back to everyone's favorite area, which of course is muscle, uh, people love that. And we'll talk about nutritional strategies in a minute where of course, and training, you know, resistance training and um, protein, of course. But what are the consequences of acute and or chronic energy restriction on muscle um, size function but also what happens in the muscle like you know its ability to store fuel that sort of thing is there anything there that we should be bearing in mind um as we consider these approaches i I think the the most important consideration is that energy restriction is accompanied by a chronic suppression of muscle protein synthesis and um, less sensitivity of muscle protein synthesis to protein and to weight training. Um, so basically we know that muscle accrues when there is a positive um, net protein balance established over 24 hours, which basically means um, if we map things over 24 hours, there's been greater time spent in muscle protein synthesis in contrast to, to muscle protein breakdown. Now, when you put energy restriction into the mix, basically you're getting this shift in balance between these two variables, um, which favor a decrease in muscle protein synthesis and an increase in muscle protein breakdown, um, subsequently threatening um, your state of um, positive protein balance. Now, that's generally the reason why people will lose fat-free mass, particularly muscle, um, during uh, weight loss phases. Now, things can get even worse um, if your training output um, and training volume start to decrease because all of a sudden um, you're already less sensitive in terms of an anabolic response to your weight training and the protein that you feed on. Um, but now if you're less able to create an anabolic stimulus in, in the gym because either you're low on energy levels, um, distracted by food focus, just not feeling it, which is all common symptoms during energy restriction, and that starts to detract from your um, training intensity, training volume, training performance, all of a sudden that, that anabolic stimulus that was there to put the muscle in the first place um, isn't there anymore to um, basically retain that muscle during the weight loss phase. So basically you've get, got an impaired anabolic stimulus if your training performance is suffering and you complement that with um, basically a 
more negative protein balance state throughout the day, um, that's generally what results in um, loss, loss of muscle mass during the diet. Now, that's also one of the reasons why one of the strategies to potentially mitigate the, the decreases in muscle is to increase protein intake to a greater degree than you would typically consume during your off season or, or time spent in energy balance. And the, the theory is that um, because basically there's less sensitivity to muscle protein synthesis and, and higher levels of muscle protein breakdown, you need more protein to try to basically shift things um, into a more favorable position. And there has been research to show that, that when you compare um, higher, some higher protein intakes to lower protein intakes during weight loss, the body composition outcomes uh, tend to be more favorable to the higher protein option. Now, um, that's, of course, extremely important to athletes, not just physique athletes, because like we discussed, um, having muscle doesn't just make you look good on stage in, in your budgie smugglers. Um, that muscle is needed to sort of hit opponents and, and, and tackle players and create power in a sprint and things like that. So, um, yeah, super important for athletes. Absolutely. And um, um, I'm still trying to get over the budgie smuggler comment there. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 look, it's important we're having this conversation because I think you know, this, this again, one of my favorite phrases is you can, but should you, you know, just because you can do this doesn't mean you should. And I think usually it's just because people haven't thought through these things because they, they are lacking in enough information to make the appropriate decision. So it just seems like it's a trendy thing to do. Um, like wearing budgie smugglers, I guess. <laughs> um, so look, I've gotten into um, periodized nutrition a lot. You know, it's a strategy. I use it a lot with my athletes and teams and so on that I work with uh, to great effect. Periodization of uh, carbohydrates in particular um, is something that um, can be really useful. But the idea that we're effectively periodizing energy is, is pretty fascinating. Um, and that brings us into this whole, you know, this whole area of intermit intermittency of energy intake um, um, and in particular uh, energy restriction and, and this concept of intermittent fasting, which is something everyone's heard of, of course, um, not just because you mentioned it at the beginning of this podcast, but um, it is something that people have talked about a lot, particularly as an approach to, um, to weight loss. There's diets called blah, 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 you know, the five, two and, and so on. What, what, you know, how effective is intermittent fasting um, and if we consider that from a clinical perspective initially, but then make this relevant to athletes, you know, how effective is it? And then we'll, we'll lead more into the main topic. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of misconception about what intermittent fasting actually means. So from a clinical perspective and, and for someone who reads the, or peruses the scientific literature, Intermittent fasting doesn't typically refer to this time-restricted feeding like most people believe it means. So um, I'll start by speaking about intermittent fasting in the context of literature first, and, and we'll call time-restricted feeding something different. Um, but the, the two most common, uh, when 
because I've, I've gone through all this research because intermittent fasting, these techniques, obviously, they fit within the umbrella of intermittent energy restriction. Now, the two most common forms of intermittent fasting is something called the 5-2 diet, which you mentioned, and something called the alternate day fasting diet. Now, basically, the 5-2 diet just means you eat whatever um, you basically want on five days of the week and then two days uh, sort of like zero to 500 calories, really, really aggressive um, deficit. The alternate day fasting is similar in that um, you might have 24 hours of zero to 500 calories consumed, followed by an ad libitum day where you just eat it as, as much as you feel like eating. Now, these techniques tend to be okay options for people that don't have any performance demands. So um, for an overweight and obese population, these are sometimes strategies that work quite well for them and they find that they're, that they're quite easy um, to stick to uh, for whatever reason. Now, I will caveat this by saying it doesn't appear that, that, that those two strategies outperform continuous energy restriction, but it may be prefer, preferred for the individual if they just prefer that, that specific setup and they find that a little bit easier to follow. But um, I would advise against these strategies for athletes because um, like there are ways around it, but more often than not, um, for athletes that are training with high volumes and, and serious athletes, um, there's going to be training going on those fasting days where zero to 500 calories are being consumed. And it's just not pragmatic to expect that the athlete's going to be able to perform optimally after 24 hours of either completely fasting or, or having 500 calories. Um, like the energy, the research is quite clear that the energy availability, specifically carbohydrate availability at a time of basically beginning performance is an important contributory factor to, to how that athlete actually performs. So um, I think we can confidently say that if an athlete was following that dietary approach, they're probably going to at least take uh, uh, some sort of performance decrement if they're training um, either on or potentially the day after um, these fasting periods. Now, time-restricted feeding is a little bit different. Now, that might just mean you have your first meal after sort of 1 p.m. or something like that and you close your feeding window to six hours or eight hours of the day or something like that. Now, again, it does not appear that, that time-restricted feed, time feeding outperforms an even spread of meals throughout the day, assuming that the energy intake across the day is matched. But um, it's a very common, um, particularly with some of the athletes that I work with, um, for people to be, um, and this is during weight loss, just really not that hungry when they wake up, but absolutely hanging for something when sort of after 8 p.m., like they just get the munchies and they want to raid the cupboard. So with that in mind, it would, it would potentially make sense that, well, hey, if you're not hungry in the morning, maybe let's not eat then. And potentially those, that energy that you're going to consume at breakfast, we might backload that to later in the day so you can have a little bit more satisfying meals in the p.m. to help squash those sort of ravenous munchies that, that sort of kick in before bed. Um, and that, that has worked um, quite well in a, in a number of people that I tried with it. And the research seems to suggest um, that the response is quite varied in terms of who likes it and who doesn't like it. But the people who like it, it seems to, it seems to work quite well um, for them. But again, if we're, if we're going back into the athlete context, you've got to ask yourself the question, uh, well, when are you training? Are you training, are you training at 6 a.m.? Are you training at 10 a.m.? Because 
geez, if you, ha- if you have a, a big session at 10.30 a.m., um, I don't think there's many sports nutritionists in the world that would advise you to go into that training session without having a breakfast beforehand. Um, maybe potentially if you've if you only got PM sessions, then ha- sort of pushing that first meal to a little bit later in the day might not have as much harm as, as sort of if you were training in the morning. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and again, we're not just talking about energy restriction. We're talking about, for most people, they're going to throw everything at this and really energy restrict and that is as you've already pointed out a problem and as i've mentioned it's not just energy they're restricting it is other things um which can be uh, near impossible to compensate for uh, even through through you know supplements so you guys um have proposed a moderate level of intermittent energy restriction um because I'm, I'm aware that we haven't got a whole lot of time here um so um, you know, and I will have everyone read your paper and your works and, and so on. But I'm really intrigued by this, um, you know, moderate approach to intermittent energy restriction. You know, why, why is that likely a good idea? And, and what does that actually look like? Yeah, so it, it, it relates to a little bit of the question we discussed earlier. So um, you remember me saying that 0.5 to 1% body weight losses seems like a pretty practical recommendation for athletes that are relatively lean potentially normal weight not overweight and they just want to get a little bit leaner so um and we this is basically because like we said before if you go too aggressive for athletes um particularly people who are who are quite lean um not only is sort of fat-free mass going to be under threat um but if you restrict calories too much um it's just unlikely that they're going to be able to perform optimally. So you try to seek out this balancing point whereby you can be losing the desired amount of fat that's required for either the weight cut or or for whatever you need um, while maintaining performance as best you can. And, and, and this 0.5 to 1%, I haven't pulled that out of my butt. That's, that's, from a systematic um, review paper and analyzing weight loss trials um, among athletes. But um, it does seem that 0.5 is, and 1% is, is a pretty safe or what we call moderate um, restriction level. So if you're losing 0.5 to 1% of your body weight, we, we would consider that moderate weight loss. So with my diet break study, we said, hey, okay, our athletes are probably going to be kind of lean, but not too lean and not too fat. So let's go somewhere in the middle. Let's go 0.7% body weight losses per week. So what that means is we just titrate the calories or their energy intake to cause approximate body weight losses of 0.7% per week for the 12 weeks of energy restriction um, that they had to undergo. So after 12 weeks um, of of dieting, they ended up losing around 8.4% of their body weight, which we'd consider to be quite moderate, not too severe, getting the required amount of weight and fat off that needs to, that needs to be done, um, but doing it in a fashion that's, um, I guess, trying to mitigate the losses of those, the, the losses of fat-free mass and performance um, decrements. Yeah, and you look, you know, look, we all know, I say we all know, you and I know, um, and our, you know, colleagues in, in, um, in the field will know that, um, and, and we, this was one of the main conclusions in our um, diets and body composition, um, the, the, the ISSM position stand that I was lucky enough to co-author. You know, compliance is a big factor here. Even, you know, yes, we made it clear that there's a big difference between doing this just to 
look better in your budgie smugglers uh, and or, you know, be um, a top performing athlete. There's a lot to consider. But the practical side of this is a huge one because, you know, everyone knows someone who's tried something and hasn't stuck with it. Um, so the practical applications of this is, you know, is important where compliance is important. Of course, being able to believe in something, uh, being able to trust in why you would want to do this, uh, particularly if you're working with a you know, nutritionist or a coach um, and you're someone who has struggled to lose weight and or you're worried about the impact this could have on your performance and your career and your job and you know, your life and livelihood and, and so on. Um, this, that's an angle that's very difficult. And of course, that's why it's important that practitioners understand the strengths and limitations of these tools in the toolbox. And, you know, again, something I frequently say, you know, one thing that, that we tend to see in experts as opposed to, um, amateur amateurs, uh, uh, that, that, are, you know, practitioners I'm referring to, um, are, are often when people know when not to do something. Um, you know, they, they've considered everything carefully and they're able to determine, you know, um, whether to or whether not to do something, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, in terms of the applied practical side of this, um, you know, what are the, what are the main considerations you think that we need to be mindful of? Mm -hmm. So, um, when you're deciding, I assume this is deciding whether to go sort of the, the intermittent approach or the yeah. continuous approach. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the, the biggest consideration should number one be the time that you have. So um, for like fighters, they might find out they've got to fight in eight weeks. Um, and then all of a sudden the weight cut begins that day. Um, in that case, a intermittent dieting approach just might not be viable because you don't have that time to spend in energy balance where you're just sort of coasting you know, in a way, because um, I think a big misconception is that people can lose fat during diet breaks and refeeds. And, and by definition, that, that's just not going to happen when, when you're establishing energy balance. Um, so intermittent dieting is, is essentially um, those, those refeeds and diet breaks are, are time spent not getting closer to your goal. It can make the attainment of that goal more efficient, but it's not sort of getting you any closer right at that point in time. Now, if you've got an athlete who knows exactly when they're competing and they're sort of four months out from a contest or five months out from a contest and um, they've done a rough approximation of how much weight and fat they need to lose to be able to be contest ready, um, then it might be it might be completely feasible to therefore say, okay, well, um, instead of just dieting the whole way through, we're going to chuck in a one-week dieting break after every three weeks of dieting. That means calories and, and carbohydrates are going to come up for seven days. It's probably going to recharge my batteries a bit. I'll be able to have some really solid training sessions. I'll probably be able to recover from them a little bit better. Um, psychologically, it's probably just going to refresh in me somewhat. And, 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 and I did see that a lot with the diet break study that I ran is, is when, when the guys come to you after their diet break, they're almost fanging to get into their next block of dieting sort of thing. They've, they've had these seven days of, of sort of carbohydrate heaven and now, now they're like, they're ready to go. They feel, they feel wound up and they feel charged. Um, so the, I think time's um, the biggest factor. Now I'm, I'm preparing the manuscript for the diet break study as we speak. And um, one of my 
um, I guess, important conclusions of the preliminary data is that intermittent diets are probably not going to speed fat loss and they're probably not going to retain metabolic rate or fat-free mass in a way that's going to impact the overall outcome. But it does seem that when you use diet breaks and refeeds, they have a profound effect on reducing appetite compared to continuous energy restriction. It just seems like overall over the course of the weight loss phase, hunger is way low when you have these intermittent periods of feeding. Now, um, if I take that in the context of athletes, we know that food focus um, can be incredibly distracting uh, for an athlete. And I'm sure uh, the listeners would know how important mental focus or in contrast, mental fatigue can basically enhance or subtract from sports performance. So I have a theory that uh, intermittent dieting, because it reduces those sensations of appetite, it might just mean the athlete's got a little bit more mental capacity to be able to focus on the training and the competitive outcome at hand, as opposed to just being engaged in, in food thought the, the entire time that's potentially going to be able to detract from their training or just put them not in the right headspace um, to perform. And just as a final comment, um, it does appear that there was substantially more dropout in the continuous dieting group than the intermittent dieting group which um, could be a factor of the, of the higher hunger that, that's experienced and it just got too much for them to handle. But whatever the reason, it does suggest that uh, an intermittent dieting approach might just be a little bit easier to stick to than a continuous dieting approach. Now, um, we've talked about all the nuances of, of any restriction and, and different types of weight loss and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, all of those are moot if the person isn't, isn't following the protocol you, you know, um, so uh, it's almost like uh, an, an approach that the athlete is able to follow easier is, is almost the most important factor out of this whole discussion. And it does appear that, that for whatever reason, um, people who are, who are having these diet breaks, they just find it a little bit easier to stay in the protocol, stay on plan and, and to get it done. Yeah. And, you know, like I was saying at the beginning, the human element in the real world is critical to compliance and ultimately a successful outcome um which is why i think there's you know this is such a great tool in the toolbox because um, you know trying to just restrict forever <laughs> is hard to get your head around you know yes athletes tend to be more focused they're more goal orientated that's why i love being a sports nutritionist because they're a lot easier to work with um usually at least um but um nonetheless you know it's great to have this now we're, we're talking about physically active people. This isn't just about food. There's other things that they're doing, um, including training. And, um, you know, not everyone's lifting weights, um, but some people maybe should consider some resistance training um, if they're going to approach, um, you know, do this approach um, for energy restriction and improving body composition, particularly if it's not just about weight loss. Body composition is a key factor here. What, you know, what are the main considerations for um, exercise uh, as it relates to this approach? Yeah, so not much has been looked at in regards to this, but I've got my own thoughts and I'm actually publishing, um, well, I'm preparing the manuscript for another study, um, which You're has looked busy at exactly, guy, Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which, which has it looked at exactly what you've just asked then and, and mm. basically says, um, 
what sort of impact do these intermittent refeeding or diet breaks have on performance acutely? Because if they did have a positive impact, we could therefore say as the sports nutritionist, hey, whenever you've got your testing week coming up or whenever you've got your highest volume sort of training week coming up, we're going to run the diet break then. So you've got um, basically additional nutritional support to uh, perform more optimally in those, in those sessions that, that matter, so to speak. Um, and from looking at the data that we have so far, um, it does appear that there's quite significant improvements in muscle endurance, at least in the legs, so both the quadriceps and hamstrings. So it seems like when you go on a seven-day diet break and you increase those calories and those carbohydrates, um, for at least a few days after that, um, there seems to be a, a remarkable increase in, in, in muscle endurance. Strength seems to be less affected, but endurance is, is definitely seems to be, to be elevated um, substantially. So with that in mind, I think it makes sense to, uh, particularly if you're doing a lot of work, or, uh, so you might be sort of at the end of a, of a mesocycle and sort of you're leading up to a deload or something and, and you're gonna be doing a ton of volume either on the track or, or in the weights room. Um, it might just make sense to run that diet break on that week um, so that you've got that enhanced endurance capacity just to be able to push a little bit harder for a bit longer, potentially, which I think is, is a, 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 an effect of um, reduced perception of fatigue coming from the diet break. Um, and um, overall, I think um, even if strength doesn't improve, um, this is what's really exciting, this, this endurance improvement with the diet breaks. It's super relevant to, to almost all team sport athletes, um, obviously all the runners, the cyclists and the rollers, but it, it almost goes far more wide-reaching than, than sort of the applications for the bodybuilders. Like the bodybuilders are probably turning up their noses right now and like, oh, bullcrap doesn't increase strength. I don't want to hear about it. Mm. Um, but for the other athletes, the guys who are, who are putting kilometers down and, and um, I think it. I think that 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 endurance, because because it seems to be such a substantial increase with the diet break, um, I think it's going to be. It would cause notable, noticeable um, improvements in that endurance performance that could um, indirectly improve the competitive outcome. Because if you're able to perform better on those training sessions that matter, I think that that can have a indirectly um, carryover effect onto the overall competitive outcome. Yeah, and that that's why I said you know. At the beginning, you know, the, 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 if we get this right, you could have your cake and eat it, so to speak. And, yeah. uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of crossover here, obviously, with other approaches, you know, because everyone wants to label things, you know, like periodized nutrition or uh, train low, you know, uh, or keto or whatever. You know, there's lots of different approaches, of course. They, they, all, they all factor into this because they're going to cross over. Um, just to go back to resistance exercise, though, because pretty much without exception, um, you know, the one thing we're trying to preserve is fat-free mass because that is the, one of the ultimate victims of, of, of a weight loss approach. Ironically, um, more of a victim than fat mass in some people's cases, particularly the, 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 the extremely overweight. So um, in terms of trying to um, mitigate this loss of fat-free mass, um, which is obviously important to performance anyway. Um, what, what do we need to be aware of as it relates to this form of energy restriction? Yeah, so I've, I've recommended in my um, 
review paper on, on intermittent dieting that, that regardless of whether you're doing sort of continuous energy restriction or intermittent energy restriction, it is in your best interest to be completing resistance training throughout that process. Um, I'd say uh, uh, to, to maximize your results, you'd probably be wanting to do at least four resistance training sessions um, per week. Now that again, the purpose of that is to offset those um, negative changes that are occurring with your muscle protein synthesis and breakdown balance. So muscle protein, um, weight training is in, in itself a stimulus for muscle protein synthesis. So the, by doing weight, train, weight training, you'll be able to basically turn on the trigger for a moment of that muscle protein synthesis that can potentially sort of go to battle with the muscle protein breakdown to, for a matter of speaking, um, which can, uh, in essence, improve the, the, the state of protein balance. Now, if you map that out over, over 10 to 12 weeks, a more positive protein balance state is, is going to uh, absolutely mitigate um, the losses of, of muscle that occur. And this has been shown in time and time again in, in many studies. Now, when we do this weight training um, and we complement it with an increase in protein intake, we give our ourselves the best chance to basically combat these reductions in muscle protein synthesis and increases in muscle, pro muscle protein breakdown to try to maintain as much of this muscle as possible. Brilliant. And, you know, whilst we're um, going down this path of practical considerations um, before we get into some nutritional um, aspects um, like protein, for example, intake. Um, you, you know, there's a, and we, I, we've covered this already, but I just wanted to make sure we just make absolutely clear how important it is to not to um, take any extremes on this. And in particular, you know, the, 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 the it is always, particularly with certain kinds of athletes um, by very nature of what they are and what they do, they love taking extremes anyway. So why not just take a severe um, approach to energy restriction? Just remind us very quickly why that should be, um, you know, you should have uh, second thoughts about that. So for athletes going through a severe energy deficit, it's going to increase the amount of weight lost, but it's also going to decrease the percentage of that weight that's coming from fat and increase the percentage of that, of that weight um, that's coming from fat-free mass comprising um, tissues like muscle. So basically, um, the more severe your deficit is, the more fat-free mass you're losing as a, on a percentage basis and the less fat you're losing on a percentage basis. The overall grams um, of each might be, so you might still be losing more fats on a, on a per gram basis, but the percentage of the total weight it's actually reduced. Um, so uh, I've, I've said in the review paper that for, for athletes who are, who are losing weight, um, retaining fat-free mass is almost as important than losing the fat itself. Because if you lose the weight, but you've lost all your fat-free mass in the process, you're not going to be able to perform anyway. So what was the point? So um, moderate energy restriction, preferable, because it reduces the proportion of that weight that's coming from fat-free mass when it's lost. Brilliant. And and therefore, that leads into, I guess, another question that, you know, we then need to factor in is, is well, you know, how, how long are we looking at for this period of weight loss? Um, and, you know, you, you're talking about refeeds, but is that, you know, how, how long are we doing these refeeds for? Is it just one meal? Is it a day? 
several days you know how does that how does that combine and i know there's a lot of contextual factors but just generally um how you know what are the considerations we need to be aware of for that yeah so most often with refeeds they're, they're quite short term so lasting anywhere between one to three days um, and they're they're put together consecutively um, and usually they'll happen once a week um, so a practical example would be to be in a moderate deficit monday through friday and then saturday and sunday you increase your energy intake to make to weight maintenance requirements um, there's been other variations um, uh, and, and this is just down to the fact that we just don't have many controlled research studies on this, but uh, some people might do a, a three-day refeed fortnightly. Um, some people love the, um, and I feel like this has just evolved from the standard bodybuilding practice of the one-day cheat day, um, but they'll do a one-day refeed. So Monday to Saturday will be sort of energy deficit established, and then um, the Sunday will be... Um, basically a, a refeed day where you increase uh, still controlled, but increase your, your energy intake. Now in terms of the factors and the considerations, um, I think again, it comes down to time because we need to remember that these refeeds aren't time spent losing fat. So if you've got a bunch of time and maybe not a whole lot of fat to lose, maybe you can side on a few three day refeeds and, and uh, at least sort of psychologically you'll feel better, a bit more refreshed and you might be able to get some really solid training on those days. Um, but if you're sort of in your fight camp, for example, and you've got six weeks to go um, and you've got six kilos to lose, um, you probably might say, okay, well, we might just do one day refeeds or might do zero refeeds. So I think the, the, time, the time before contest and the amount of fat that you've got to lose are the biggest considerations for sort of the timing and the frequency of those. Yeah, awesome. So, I mean, that's exciting for us as performance nutritionists because clearly there's a great deal of adaptability that this approach has we can really customize it to the individual like i said as long as we're aware of all the strengths and limitations and you know we know what we're doing which is going to bring us back to the diet of course um because we're talking about energy restriction but as i said we you know we don't eat energy we eat food happens to have energy in it and there's a quality component to that. Um, just before we talk about what, that, what those calories are comprised of, because we've talked about you know, a moderate approach to our energy balance. Um, and we know that you know, the macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrate are going to be a, you know, uh, distributed a certain way. And we'll talk about you know, how you might want to approach the balance of that. But just generally the quality of diet as well, um, is that something that's important? And by quality, I mean, you know, um, a, a balanced diet in terms of, you know, many different kinds of foods or, you know, um, if we bring this back to certain kinds of athletes, particularly physique athletes, you know, I remember uh, uh, when I was working with some athletes in that area, you know, you typically would see them with the Tupperware with, you know, a, a breast of chicken and some broccoli and maybe some rice or pasta. And that's about it. <laughs> uh, you know, are, are there any quality considerations that we should be mindful of? You think? Yeah, I think there's trade-offs on either end of the spectrum. So in one respect, having a very varied uh, diet comprising lots of different food sources and whole foods uh, that can tend to have a positive impact on the gut microbiome 
and uh, often those whole foods contain all the necessary micronutrients that athletes need and so you're at far less risk of being deficient in any certain um, nutrient um, if you if you if you're consuming a balanced diet comprising various whole foods um, you're also likely to consume a high fiber intake now fiber intake in the context of a weight loss phase or energy restriction um, it's quite satiating so it keeps you fuller for longer uh, with not a whole lot of calories so i always advise for, for most of my guys to try to um, have quite a high fiber diet during energy restriction because it's going to mitigate some of those hunger urges um, can allow you to feel more satiated and less likely to sort of trigger those binge eating episodes and whatnot but if we go on the other end of the coin and if we just keep, let's just say for, for sake of things, the, the bro diet and, and sticking to those sort of five foods every meal, sort of four or five times a day, um, that has the benefits of consistency and predictability with the weigh-ins, um, which can make the, the subsequent calorie adjustments um, quite accurate because um, with sort of flexible dieters and very varied, varied dieters, um, it often results in different fiber intakes, different sodium intakes, different foods and energy density volumes um, each day, which can basically just cause these, these up and down movements um, on the scale that aren't necessarily reflective of, of fat loss or, or, or things like that. Um, so I think some, finding somewhere in the middle is a pretty good spot. Um, there's some research to say that if you vary foods too much, um, you get hungrier. So if you keep, when you, when you um, expose a person to the same meal over and over, they, they tend to eat less of it at libidum. Um, so which suggests that sort of your body comes accustomed to eating the same sort of foods and, and appetite comes to be suppressed somewhat. So with all those things considered, I think it's, um, you do want to consume a balanced diet, but not too varied. I think if you're having um, completely different meals on every day, um, that's probably overdoing it somewhat and it's probably just going to result in um, higher hunger, um, quite unpredictable weigh-ins each day, which can make sort of um, you navigating or steering the ship quite difficult. Um, and, uh, but yeah, on the other side of the coin, you don't want to be sort of stuck to these four or five foods um, because it might have negative impacts on sort of nutrient deficiencies and things like that. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, and for me though, the, the sort of the warning light goes off when I think, well, okay, we really do need some people who know what they're doing then to get involved. Um, particularly if it's not going to be that varied, that the diet that they are, you know, consistently following is ticking the boxes required for health. Cause you know, as we mentioned, there are implications of being in an energy restricted state you're eating less food, therefore you're not just eating less calories, you're eating less micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, iron. You just mentioned fiber, um, particularly for those that are trying to uh, restrict their macronutrients further, not just energy restriction, but they're going to go, carbs are evil, I'm not going to eat carbs. Um, so let's get into that then, because I think that, that oh, sorry, before I move beyond that, um, so because they're in an energy-restricted energy state, uh, and potentially a micronutrient at risk of being restricted. Um, you know, is, is, is there any value you think in um, supplements, that sort of thing, um, which, you know, perhaps the, 
the nutritionist, the dietitian or whatever would be best able to take an individual view of that, you know, but, but just generally, is that something that's warranted? Do you think? Um, I like, I, I still think going food first is going to be the best option. And if you are deficient in something, um, it probably means that you've either, you just severely restricted your, your energy intake too far Mm. or that you've severely restricted your food variation. Um, a lot of, there seems to be a lot of misconception about sort of micronutrient needs, like, and that you need to be eating sort of 20 different colored vegetables and fruits just to sort of hit your RDAs. And, and it just doesn't seem like that's absolutely necessary. Um, and the, the, the required intakes can be achieved with, without too much effort. I find if you actually really look at sort of what a whole day's eating look like to, to provide all those micronutrients and that, and that, we can't rely on the athletes to know that, but the sports nutritionist or the dietitian should. Mm. Um, but let's just say that they are at risk and, and that their food's just a miss. Um, it doesn't seem like there's too much harm with consuming market, um, multivitamin supplements or things like that as a means to sort of cover the bases. It seems like at worst, um, most of those vitamins would just be excreted in the urine that, that aren't sort of needed um, beyond required intakes. Um, I, I am sort of sometimes fearful of multivitamins with high doses of vitamin C and vitamin E, uh, which are antioxidants, which have been shown to uh, potentially reduce the adaptation to training. Um, Cause of course training, um, uh, causes an inflammatory response with, which actually triggers adaptation in the muscle um, so that we can basically get better after that training. Now, if you're, if you're basically squashing that sim stimulus with, with too high intakes of antioxidants, often the antioxidant doses that are sort of present in, in some very strong um, multivitamins uh, and mineral supplements, then um, I think there is potential that you could be somewhat... Um, impacting your progress um, a little. So that's why I tend to, if possible, go with a food first approach. Completely agree. Completely agree. And that, this comes up all the time with the various experts I talk with, particularly as you advocate a moderate um, intermittent energy restriction approach where you're making sure you are eating quality food. Um, it's unlikely to, to be a problem. Of course, there are caveats to that that might be you know, uh, female athletes, certain, you know, menstrual considerations, particularly in endurance athletes where there's a high, they're still energy restricted, but they're still relatively speaking in, in high rates of energy expenditure. Um, you know, so there's factors there to consider. Um, but I think, uh, you made it, you know, quite clear that, um, you know, let's, let's take a food first approach. Now, just remember, um, what, um uh sorry to go to go back to the, this point of of protein carbohydrates and and fat considerations do we just restrict them all do we want to prioritize one over the other um you know uh, let's let's all let's all just kick out carbohydrates because they're evil you know what what are what are your thoughts there uh between protein fats and carbohydrates in in our approach to energy restrict uh, energy restricted uh, feeding but also bearing in mind that there are refeed periods as well yeah so um i like to go with protein first um that should be our first port of call so we we talked about all the benefits that extra protein might have in offsetting 
the reductions in muscle protein synthesis that accompany energy restriction. So I, the research suggests that somewhere between two to 2.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight um, per day during time spent in energy restriction is probably what's going to be ideal for maintaining as much um, muscle mass as possible. Going beyond that intake just doesn't seem like um, it does too much. And I think the excess protein is just getting oxidized in, in that state. Um, going lower protein than that, um, for example, like uh, 1.6 to, to 2, 2 grams per kilo, which is similar to recommendations which for protein during a period of energy balance or the off season, um, that might not quite be enough to offset the increases in muscle break, protein breakdown and things that are occurring uh, with energy restriction. So we like to sit a little bit higher and set protein at, at somewhere between two to 2.6 grams per kilo of body weight. Uh, for the diet break study, we gave all our athletes 2.3 grams of protein per kilo of body weight during their dieting time. <clears throat> now our next place was um, to go to fats. Now, we think that it's in an athlete's best interest to keep fat on the moderately low end. Um, and we think this for a few reasons. Um, and, and this is basically coming into the conversation of, of what's more important for an athlete, carbs or fats. Now, carbohydrates, are, they fuel high-intensity exercise performance. Fats don't. Carbs are also provide fuel for the nervous system, which helps them to uh, basically facilitate recovery. Fats don't do that. Carbs are in a way anabolic because they, they activate insulin mediated anabolic pathways. Fats don't do that. Um, fats are also extremely energy dense, which means they pack a lot of calories for not a lot of food volume, which means they're not actually quite filling, which can be a problem during a weight loss phase uh, when you're trying to control calories, but you're just so damn hungry. So it seems like on the way of the evidence, it just makes a whole lot more sense to stick with fat quite low, um, but keep carbs as sort of high as we can. So where do we go with fat intake? We think from the research somewhere around half a gram per kilo of body weight of dietary fat is a safe bet. We don't want to go too low because we do need some essential fatty acids for hormonal regulation and chemical messengers and, and, and things like that. But going beyond sort of the minimum threshold of dietary fat just doesn't seem like it, it benefits athletes in any meaningful way. Whereas if we contrast that to carbohydrates, um, Almost always in, in any sort of sports science uh, research publication, increased carbohydrate almost always leads to improved performance outcomes and some mostly in endurance, but sometimes strength as well. Um, so we think set protein first, set fat quite low, somewhere at half a gram per kilo of your body weight, which usually equates to around 20% of your energy intake, assuming that you're at a moderate level of energy restriction and then whatever's left over of those calories that fits within your overall caloric budget allocate that towards carbohydrates because it's going to fuel your high intensity training it's going to allow you to recover from that training it's potentially going to turn on some of those insulin mediated anabolic pathways which might be helpful for maintaining fat-free mass during the dieting and they they're on a per gram basis, they tend to be more filling than fats, which might mean you, you have this overall level of, of satiation during the diet, which means you're less likely to fall off the wagon. Now, what do you do in refeeds or diet breaks? We're, we know that we have, to, we have to increase calories. Where do we increase them from? 
we don't think increasing protein does anything. We think that if you just increase protein, you're probably just going to oxidize it as, as extra energy. It's not going to go towards any of those important muscular processes. Um, we also don't think fat increasing fat's going to do much. Um, it doesn't seem like fat increasing dietary fat intake has um, substantial positive roles on increasing resting energy expenditure or even uh, to some degree um, restoring suppressed hormone levels. But uh, we do think that in a refill or diet break, when you're increasing those calories, which usually is in the range of, of depending on sort of how much the person is restricting and how large they are, somewhere between 400 to 600 calories increase per day of the, of, on the refeed or diet break. We think most of that, if not all of that, should be coming from carbohydrate. Because like we said, we just think you're going to get the more bang from your buck from increasing carbohydrate as opposed to increasing protein or fat. Yeah, and you know, like I said, you can have your cake and eat it then, can't you, Jackson? So mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that worked out very convenient. And yeah, just from a practical perspective, it, it, you know, it's no joke, it's true. Carbs taste great. Yeah, there are definitely satiating and enjoyable components to fat, no doubt. Um, but car carbs are king on many, many levels, aren't they? And I guess from a psychological perspective, there are, you know, whether it's your you know, your bread and your sandwich or your toast or your cake, your, your English phrase, obviously, but biscuits and cookies. And, you know, these are all the tasty treats that you find yourself, your mind disappearing thinking about these things, which <laughs> is the problem with continuous energy restriction is you're told you can have half a biscuit once a week sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's very, very difficult to see, see yourself doing that months on end. Whereas, of course, with this, you, you know, within days, you can look forward to, to that treat, which is, um, I know from personal experience and certainly with my athletes, that's a huge factor in that compliance factor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, as nutritionists or coaches or whatever, you, you know, we, we, we're not just trying to put together something that's scientifically based, evidence-based and so on. We've, we've got to sell this. We've got to sell it to our, to our client, to our, to our athlete. And um, I think what you've done today jackson comprehensively is help us understand you know this this concept of intermittent energy restriction particularly the moderate approach to it the strengths and limitations to it um you know why and why not obviously we should we should do it and um and also how to sell it which is awesome so just just by way of just summarizing then what we've talked about um you know what are the points then you want to leave us with in terms of sort of take-home messages as it relates to this and potentially some future you know considerations as well yeah so um i think intermittent dieting is definitely a viable weight loss approach for athletes <clears throat> it's probably not going to increase your fat loss or ramp up your metabolism or allow you to maintain a heap of muscle compared to continuous energy restriction, but it might reduce your appetite and make your hunger a little bit easier to manage. Um, it also seems from some of my preliminary data that it increases alertness during the weight loss phase and it decreases irritability. Now, when we factor all those things together, um, it seems as though that could have a result for an athlete where they're in a more focused psychological state, allowing them to 
um, direct more attentional focus to the training and the competitive outcome as opposed to constantly being fixated um, on food and sort of when the next meal is, which has the potential to detract from the training and, and the competitive outcome. It also seems like uh, using diet breaks can have a short-term improvement in muscle endurance performance. So it would make sense to synchronize these diet breaks with your most important sort of training sessions for the month or potentially um, some testing weeks and uh, optimized performance during those times uh, could have an ind indirect um, improvement on the uh, overall competitive outcome. Um, in terms of weighing whether you should go with intermittent dieting or not, um, it should be factored mostly against how much time you've got up your sleeve before you need to be ready and how much fat you've got to be you've got to lose um, if you've got a bunch of time intermittent dieting might be a great option because you'll be able to lose just as much fat um, potentially with some lower appetite and some less distracted distraction and, and psychological disturbance whereas if you ha don't have much time a continuous uh approach is probably just as viable uh, because you'll be able to get the the fat off in the same amount of dieting period time but less overall time um, probably with a little bit hung uh, higher hunger and probably a little bit harder to stick to uh, but you'll be more likely to be ready in time awesome thank you so much jackson for sharing um all of your knowledge and your insights and, and research on this, particularly from the perspective of a researcher and as an athlete, um, you know, from your own experiences, it's been um, really valuable uh, to me and I know it will be to the listeners. And of course, your colleagues, uh, Drs. Norton, Helms, Galpin and Fournier, you know, obviously a part of this as well. So thank you also to them for contributing. But uh, you've done a great job there. I'm really Really happy we, uh, we, we've been at this for an hour and a half or hour and 40 minutes or whatever, which just shows you it's just a snip of this topic. You've now spent years working on this and will continue to. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you learn down the road and um, bring you back. Um, I almost met you uh, a few months ago. Uh, we were supposed to be both speaking at a uh, sports nutrition Australia ISIS and Australia conference. Um, but next time, next time yeah. maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll meet. Um, but um, for folks that want to, you know, uh, follow you and catch up with you and, and so on, I'll obviously link to your social media and your papers and various other things that I think are relevant as well as a few podcasts I've done, uh, including Lane Norton and uh, Eric Helms and so on, who um, we talked about some of these things a few years ago now, but it's all relevant. Um, but in terms of like your sort of Twitter or Instagram or research gate, what, what, what are the ones that um, we should be looking for to follow you in your work? Yeah, so best place to get me is on Instagram, just at Jackson Pioff. Everything that I'm sort of doing, whether that's uh, research in the lab or, or training or eating, uh, it'll, it'll go through Instagram. Um, so that's just at Jackson Pioff. Um, I have started dabbling into the, the YouTube realm and I'm uh, attempting to do some more um, educational but also lifestyle content through there. So if you could Great. hit me up on my YouTube, that would be awesome. Maybe cool. maybe if this podcast sent you there, you can comment budgie smugglers or something. <laughs> So we'll know where you came from. <laughs> but that's the best place to get me. Code word budgie smugglers. Yeah. I'm not, sure what, I'm not sure what I've unleashed here, but there you go. Um, 
no, that's brilliant. Well, look, thank you. I'm really grateful. Thank you once again. Um, and I'll tag you when I post this. Um, so folks, that uh, brings us uh, to the end of this, this episode. If you want to uh, um, get hold of those other podcasts and resources and so on, just uh, come to our website at www.theiopn.com where you can learn about this podcast, our own uh, YouTube channel where we cover um, technical uh, topics as well um, and uh, our educational uh, program our advanced training and education program in performance nutrition for current and aspiring performance nutritionists check all that out at www.theiopn.com i am lauren bannock look forward to bringing another episode back to you guys very soon take care everyone